You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So for many of us, the last six months has not been easy. Some of us, as I look around, some of us have witnessed as frontline workers more death than many will in a lifetime. Some of us have lost jobs or seen our businesses suffer. I've yet to meet someone who says, I can't wait to get on another Zoom call. Zoom calls have drained our energy and haven't filled our emotional tanks like meeting in person. And as we heard, spending time with our families indoors has inevitably caused tensions to rise at home. Safety guidelines are constantly changing and we feel stifled in more ways than one. And we wonder whether God is in control or the politicians. But our pastors today gives us a way to speak to our weary and anxious souls. It encourages us to trust and worship God for his providential and sovereign care of world events. And my hope and prayer is that, this, that by looking at his word once again, it will impart faith and confidence to us for the days ahead. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 131. And I'll read it out for us. Psalm 131. If you don't have your Bibles, it should be displayed on the PowerPoint. Psalm 31. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. A short psalm, but a gem of a psalm. What I want to communicate today is that we are to quiet our souls by putting our hope in the providence and presence of God. Quiet our souls by putting our hope in God's providence and presence. And well, three main points. First, we'll see that we are to trust in God's providence. Second, we are to see that we are to delight in God's presence. And third, we will see that we are to hope in God's promises. And these will follow the verses in our passage. So first, let's start with point number one, trust in God's providence. Let's start by looking at the psalm title, which is actually a part of the psalm. It says it's a song of ascents. Our psalm today is a part of songs that were sung by Israelites as they would ascend or go up geographically to, to worship in Jerusalem. And our title also tells us that King David composed the psalm himself. Now, our psalm doesn't give us any explicit historical clues as to why he writes the psalm, if there was an experience that led him to write the psalm. But if we look at the psalm right before, at Psalm 130, we get a clue as to why Psalm 131 follows Psalm 130 in our Bibles. So look with me at the end of Psalm 130. Verse 7 and 8. It ends very similarly to our psalm today, but with a bit more detail. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It's the same. 
But then he gives us a reason. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So God, in his steadfast love, has redeemed, bought back his people Israel from slavery. An enslaved nation now lives in a city where their own king sits on the throne. And even more, there was the promise that he would deliver them from the penalty of their sin. And it is this great and majestic God whom the king addresses on behalf of his people. O Lord, O Yahweh, the one true God, the great provider of our salvation. And we will see in the rest of this verse, in verse 1, that every aspect of his being, of the king's being, assumes a proper disposition toward this God. So we look and we see, he says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. The heart for the Israelite was the center of all mental, emotional, and spiritual activity. And whatever the heart desires, the the eyes look out for. If the heart is proud, you will see it in the eyes. The eyes have been said to be the mirror of the soul. A single glance, if you think of it, carries so much meaning. And not even our masks can hide this. A disapproving glance, a quick eye roll, a stare, all of these can betray the desires of our hearts. It can be a look of envy at those above us, or it can be a look of disdain at those we think are below us. Prideful eyes seek to exalt ourselves above our proper station. And this pride can not only be expressed towards people, but it can also be expressed towards God. And that is what we see as we read on. The king says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The word translated here as occupy is the same word for walk. It refers to the way that you conduct your life. And we see this in other um, psalms. We see in Psalm 86, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The desire here, the prayer, is to live according to God's way and God's truth. Now, this part of the verse is is talking more about just more than having just ambitions. We can all have good aspirations to advance in our professions, to be good spouses and parents, to pass on financial stability to the next generation. But what this verse is speaking about is a way of living where you are overly concerned with problems that you do not have the power or the ability to solve. It warns against the prideful desire of seeking to understand and to grasp an issue that is beyond our finite minds. Now, if you think about it, wasn't this the sin of Adam and Eve? They tried to exalt themselves above their God-given position. They wanted to know good and evil. They want to be like God. They were tempted by that desire. And that desire to be like God is the height of pride and arrogance. But there are things for only God to know because of who he is. Only a sovereign and a good God is able to act always consistently with his holy character to bring himself the glory that he deserves. 
God knows the danger that comes with knowing good and evil, but not having the ability to solve the problem of evil. It is unsafe to entrust power to those who are not able to wield it. And that is why we don't hand chainsaws or knives to children. How often, if we think about it, how often can we be like Adam and Eve, trying to be like God? It is not for us to know when coronavirus will end or when a second wave will come. It is not for us to know and fully grasp the relationship between God's divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. It is not for us to know what the next two years will look like or even tomorrow will look like. And how often we can move back and forth in the rocking chairs of our anxiety, soothing our minds by thinking that by doing something, we can contribute something to the solution. But the psalmist here, he refuses to have this posture before God. He sees himself rightly before God, like Saint Anselm did. And this is what he says. I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them. But I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. And then we come to the part that is always quoted. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. In light of God's glory and his gracious providence, there is no place for a proud heart and lofty eyes. Minds that race at night worrying about tomorrow. There is no need for our feet to pace back and forth for us to anxiously wring our hands wondering what will happen. There is only one proper whole-bodied posture towards God. And this brings us to our second point, which is delight in God's presence. Delight in God's presence. So we see in verse 2 that the king, the psalmist, is resolved not to fall into the trap of pride before God. Our verse here begins with an emphatic contrast. I will not have this proud posture, but rather I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now the word, the word calmed here means to smooth out, to make uniform. Think of, a, think of a peaceful lake at the cottage in the morning, no wind, no ripples. Or think about having, instead of having a furrowed brow between your eyes, a face that is free of wrinkles. And the word quiet here means to cease activity. There is no rocking chair here in this picture. Instead of worrying, the king has resolved for his whole being, for his soul, to be composed and untroubled. And how David chooses to illustrate this posture brings us to the central metaphor or, or simile of this psalm, a calm soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now, I've never had the experience of weaning a child off its mother's milk, so I had to do a little digging on, on what it's like. And many of you are going to understand this metaphor much better than I can. Weaning a child off its mother's milk denies them of their comfort. What used to give them nourishment and joy is now taken away. They need to get accustomed to feeding off something else. And at first, the child is going to think the mother is, is cruel. How could you deprive me 
of this, of what gave me joy, of what gave me sustenance, and it cries out in disappointment and confusion. But what the child does not understand is that the mother is doing something, is doing something good and absolutely necessary for the child. A baby cannot, cannot live off the mother's milk indefinitely. And the mother, for sure, she hears the cries and she must steel herself for the outstretched arms and the tears of the child. Now, the immediate lesson for the baby is that it will need to feed on solid food in order to grow and to be satisfied. But the more important and enduring lesson and what David chooses to highlight here, the mother is teaching the child to simply be content Simply be content in the mother's presence, even when there are things that are left unexplained. To be content in the presence of the giver, not merely looking for the gifts. The mother knows what is best, and there is no need to worry. The weaned child is just content to be in his mother's arms, not afraid of anything and not wanting to be anywhere else. Now, the nation of Israel had to learn this lesson the hard way. God led them in his love, disciplining them in the desert. And in their 40 years, they were fed with providential manna instead of the fish and leeks and onions and cucumbers and melons that they had enjoyed in Egypt. But again, what they ate was not the point. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. God is saying, or Moses is saying to the nation of Israel, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And here's the purpose. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel needed to learn that the God who had delivered them from slavery knew best. The question for Israel was, will you trust me? Is it not enough that I am with you, that I dwell in your midst, that I am your God and you are my people? And if we think about it, we can see ourselves in Israel, can't we? When God lovingly, always lovingly disciplines us, when he removes the comforts of our status, of our stability, we can often take offense at not having what we think we deserve. We think God himself is not enough. God has failed me yet again. We can be so blind to his frowning providence, his gentle use of trials in our lives to gently draw us to himself. And instead of being content with God's presence in these times, we are often not humble, but we grumble. We do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, doing the same thing that Romans 1 speaks of, and we succumb to the same sin of Adam and Eve, not valuing God above all things. Now, none of us, none of us here are able to speak this psalm with complete honesty, and even, even David himself, as he penned, as he composed this psalm, he had pride in his heart as he wrote this out. But not so with Jesus. Hebrews 4 tells us that he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. As a baby, he too was weaned 
from his mother's milk. And scripture doesn't tell us this, but he did not grumble. He was misunderstood by his family, his followers, and hated by his own nation. But his response was to continue to entrust himself to the God who judges justly. And as he faced his greatest trial, the cross, he found solace in communing with his father in prayer, even when his closest friends couldn't stay awake with him. Jesus is the embodiment of this psalm. Not an ounce of pride was found in his veins. Instead of exploiting his position as the son of God, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. His heart was never lifted up, nor his eyes too high. Even as he sweat drops of of blood in prayer in the garden, he showed his perfect trust and dependence on God. Not my will, but yours be done. He was confident that his father knew best, and so he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as he died, paying the penalty for sin, he was forsaken by God, by his own father, so that those who would believe in him and what he accomplished on the cross would have the opportunity to delight in his father's presence, as he also had. No longer would the presence of God be one of wrath and fear because sin separates man from a holy God. Those who were once enemies of God can now draw near to him because of Christ's righteousness covering them. Those adopted by God into his family through Christ can now call him father and delight in his presence. But as we can see, our psalm doesn't finish here. This this posture of trust and delight leads to a precious privilege for God's people. And this brings us to our third point. Hope in God's promises. Hope in God's promises. So far as we see the psalmist, the king, King David, he has been addressing God. But now he addresses his subjects and God's people. And the exhortation here is simple. We read, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth to forevermore. We see a command with an eternal time frame. Now you might say, okay, Timon, the text says hope in the Lord, not hope in God's promises. But I want us to see from other passages of scripture, and we'll we'll go outside the psalm, I want us to see that Hoping in the Lord and hoping in his promises are one and the same thing. These days when we use the word hope in English, there is an element of uncertainty. I hope I get the job I interviewed for. She hopes that their crops will produce a good yield this season. He hopes to lose 10 pounds so he can fit in his wedding tux. Now all of these, all of these speak to some kind of Desire, but whether this desire is fulfilled is up in the air. The desired outcome depends on unpredictable factors. But biblical hope is different. It is certain, and this is what we see in Hebrews 6.11. This is what the author of Hebrews says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance, the full assurance of hope until the end. 
Biblical hope is fully assured. It is certain. And this is because the hope of the Christian lies in a God who, in, in some sense, and, and I say this carefully, a God who is totally predictable. He will always act in accordance to his character and bring the glory to himself that he deserves. In Titus 1-2, we see that he is a God who never lies because he is a God of truth. His character and his word are inseparable. His faithfulness means that he will keep his word. He will do what he has promised. And this is what we see in Hebrews 10-23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is not some, some fingers crossed, some knock on wood type of confidence. This is an unshakable hope in a faithful God. To hope in the Lord is to hope in his word. And what are just a, a few of the many promises that God has given to us in his word? What are some of the promises this faithful God has said to his people? He has promised to provide someone to crush the head of the serpent. He has said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. He has said, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He has said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now all of these promises, all of these promises and more belong to God's people in Christ. All the promises of God, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, find their yes, their fulfillment in Christ. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, and he has conquered death. God graciously gives his chosen people a new heart so that they are now able to put their faith in Christ. Through the righteousness that is in Christ, man's wickedness before God is forgiven, and their sins are remembered no more. And through his spirit dwelling in his people, God gives his people rest in Christ. And isn't it Jesus himself who beckons us to put our hope in him? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To hope in the Lord is to put your confidence in the promises of the only sovereign, the faithful, the triune God. This is the unchanging, the eternal hope of God's people. So now, where do we go from here? We've heard all of this. So what? If you are here or you're listening at home and you're not yet a Christian, let me ask you, is your soul at peace? Is it quiet? I'm not talking about... Um, the peace that comes through meditation or, or mindfulness. Is your soul at peace? I'd bet that the last six months has added a little bit of noise inside, as it has for all of us. You've seen the numbers continually rise on the news. Uncertainty has, has, has wedged its way into even more sectors, global economics, safety guidelines, schools, retirement, savings. Everyone is a little more on edge. What used to give a sense of security has now changed or even disappeared. 
And the question has probably crossed your mind as well. Will I be a statistic? And if you have never hoped in the Lord before, now is the time to do so. Through this pandemic, God is speaking clearly to the world and to you. You are not in control, but I am. Your soul will only be at rest if you relinquish, if you let go of your self-sufficiency. You need to turn from the pride, from the sin of your pride and trust in the salvation Jesus has already accomplished on the cross for sinners like yourself. No longer would you need to fear the future or fear death, but you can rest secure knowing that you have eternal life in Jesus. So, for, so how do you respond to this passage? Come to Jesus, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And if you are a Christian, here are three ways, three quick ways that we can apply the truths of this psalm. First, stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. If you're ever driving down the, the DVP, the Don Valley Parkway, um, you'll be able to see the CN Tower at a distance, I think on your right-hand side. And from there, it doesn't look, it doesn't look very impressive. It's just one of the uh, other buildings that juts out in the harborfront skyline. But when you're standing, when you're standing at the base of it and you look up, you begin to realize how tall it really is and you get a sense of your real size. When we are near Jesus, when we daily commune with him in the word and in prayer, when we delight in his presence, we become humbled in light of his beauty and his majesty. As we think about him crucified for our sins, the cross cuts us down to size and removes any notion that we have of boasting or pride. But if we do not stay close to Jesus, if our, if our Bibles are, are dusty, if prayer is, is an afterthought, we begin to lose the wonder of who we is, of who he is. We begin to think higher of ourselves than we ought. Sin becomes a little more easy when we are away from the face of our Savior. And yesterday's grace becomes sufficient for today. What a dangerous spot to be in. And if we think about how easily we can find ourselves there. So resolve, resolve to stay close to Jesus, delight in his presence, and learn humility from him. That's the first thing. Second way we can apply this, surrender control, surrender control. Most of us will fall into two camps when it comes to trying to manage our anxieties and our worries um, that are beyond our control. Some of, us will, some of us will rush into a, into, into a situation and try to quickly grab the bull by the horns. Um, you know, head first, eyes closed, can't lose, as I've heard someone say before. And you know who you are. But others, like me, are, are cautious calculators. We have, you know, endless tiered to-do lists. We have perfect spreadsheets. Our schedule is planned out by the hour. But for both sides, this is the tendency to think that it is all up to us. We forget that there are so many things that are way beyond our control, the, the future and all its unknowns, our loved ones' futures, what other people might think of us, 
our health, and the list, the list goes on. And this is yet another case of pride rearing its ugly head. Now, when the Spirit convicts us of this, and, and he will, what we need to do is to repent of our pride and submit ourselves again to our Father's providence, our Father's good providence. We need to pray the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Surrender control to a good and sovereign God. And lastly, the last way we can be applying this, strive for contentment, strive for contentment. Ask yourself, are you content with whatever situation God places you in? Are you content with whatever whatever situation God places you in? Many of you will know that God has led Joanne and I through a season of infertility. And it has been hard. The battle to live out the the points of this sermon, to trust in God's providence, to delight in his presence, to hope in God's promises has been hard. It has been hard to sing whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But our good father, he is still teaching us to say that. He is lovingly weaning us off our self-sufficiency and our desire to be like others, to um, be like normal families. He has shown us his, his comforting presence through many of you. He has gifted us with time to work on our marriage and to build gospel-revealing relationships with others. He has, he has his promises to be near to the broken heart, his promise that he will never leave or forsake us, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. These promises have been so much sweeter to us in a time of trial. So brothers and sisters, hope in the Lord, hope in our Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, you have made known to us the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Give us grace to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, whatever situation I am in, I have learned to be content. Father, all our hope is in you. We pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.